Today we have Ed Sittler on the show. Do you want to learn more about why demographics are so important for success in the multifamily industry? Learn what it takes to succeed as a real estate investor from Ed Sittler, who traded in being a paralegal in California, and he went all in on multifamily investing. Hear his story of how he burned the boats and created success. In this episode, you will learn why demographics are so important for multifamily investing, why having an accountability partner is key to success, and why picking partners with complementary skill sets creates such a strong team. Listen and learn. Are you looking to invest in multifamily real estate and want to learn? Go to join.darrenbatchelder.com, sign up, and start your journey. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Ed Sittler before we start the show. Ed lives in DFW, but it wasn't always that way. He was working as a paralegal in California when he started to invest in real estate and he developed a relationship with his business partner. One step after another and he found himself quitting his job and moving to Dallas to build a career as a full-time multifamily real estate investor. He's learned many lessons along the way, but his biggest lesson learned is the importance of demographics. Listen and learn. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Ed Sittler. Ed, appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, man. Good to be here. Absolutely. So a little bit on how we know each other. Um, We both are part of the same multifamily mentorship group, the Brad Sumrock group in uh, Dallas market. And I don't know, but we've probably started somewhere similar. I started in the group uh, December 2017. And I got to imagine you, you Mm -hmm. came in shortly after. Yeah. About six months after, I think. About six months after. Yeah. About June, June or so, uh, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So um, fantastic. So it, with that, can you share with the listeners a little bit on um, how many properties and how many your, units you're invested in? Sure. So uh, I've I've been a, a GP on seven properties total. Um, one of those sold last year, so six that are you know currently in operation. Um, that comes to about if you include the the all time total, that's fourteen hundred plus units, and it'd be about. Uh, about 1300 some, um, as of, as of the current ones. Fantastic. And do you invest, uh, as a limited partner as well? Yeah, I do. Um, it's a six or seven, uh, deals that I've invested in as an LP, um, on the unit count, I'd have to go check, but, uh, that's, that's, you know, probably, right. <laughs> probably similar that, number. Yeah. That's all right. But that just shows you like June of 2018 and as a general partner, you did seven properties and you've already had one that's gone full cycle. It's a, it's amazing in such a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously like I think you and I and kind of everybody who started around that time, you know, it was a pretty good time to get into it. Right. I mean, really anytime in the last 10 years, probably. Right. right. Um, we, we definitely so, had wind at our back for sure. Yeah. And um, obviously now we're kind of hitting some headwinds for the first time for most of us. Right. Which we could probably exactly. talk about more. Um, but so yeah, we'll, you know, it's all these deals were just, you know, trading every like two or three years, right. For a while, just cause the, you know, you could get your returns and get out and everybody's happy. That's crazy. So uh, can you share a little bit about your background and, and like, why, why did you even get in multifamily? Yeah. So uh, my, my sort of career, yeah, really the only career I had before this was as a paralegal. So, um, you know, it was kind of, you know, maybe a typical story where, you know, after college, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Kind of, kind of bummed around, you know, had random jobs here and there. Um, and eventually decided, you know, I need, I need some kind of like stable job. 
Right. I, I just needed like, I, I wasn't even thinking about like career necessarily. Just I needed a, a stable job just to, you know, make survive. money move on. Yeah, survive. Yeah, be independent. Where were you living? Right. Uh, so well, I'm originally from New York, New York City, Brooklyn. Um, I went to college at a small uh, school in Iowa, randomly enough. But uh, so I had after college, I'd bounced around. I actually spent some time in Texas, went back to New York for a while uh, and then ended up in uh, San Francisco. Um for about eight years before I came back out to Texas um, to get into real estate. So yeah, I'd kind of, you know, ended up ended up sort of falling into the paralegal thing. Um, and it's it just one of those things where, you know, it's kind of like the more experience you get in a certain field, the, the easier it is to get those jobs. And, you know, that's it's kind of the path of least resistance at that point. Um, so that's what I was doing for, you know, probably about 10 years. Uh, the, so San Francisco, I, not a cheap place to live. Yeah. Um, and how did you, so Perry Zhang, your partner, um, mm -hmm. you know, had him on the show, uh, episode 137. And how did you two connect? Yeah, so we met in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, it was kind of around the time when I think we were both sort of just getting interested in real estate. I think Perry had maybe bought like one, condo in San Francisco, I had just bought a uh, duplex in Oakland with a friend of mine. So those were kind of uh, our first sort of investment properties, I guess you, you could say. Um, you I bought meet? a couple turnkey single families before that, but nothing's new. Um, so yeah, we actually met from uh, Bigger Pockets, um, just on the forums, as I recall. I think we were both posting in, you know, some thread about like, Bay Area, because, you know, we were both trying to trying to make it in Bay Area at that point. And uh, we connected there, ended up, um, you know, meeting up in person, uh, kind of, you know, hit it off. And we just kind of kept meeting, you know, every week, basically, every weekend, we would meet up and, you know, just talk about what we were trying to do. Um, we never we never got anything more going in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, needless to say, but Perry ended up um, moving to Seattle. Uh, he was he was working at Lyft at that time, uh, so they moved him to Seattle, and then we ended up buying a few single families in Seattle, actually. So those were kind of our first like deals as a partnership. Um, and you know, we we wanted to get into multifamily um, at the time, but you know, again, the Seattle market was so crazy, right? We were just sure. kind of bumping our heads against the wall. Uh, felt like we really weren't getting much momentum out there. Because uh, it was just, you know, the prices were crazy. It was it was so hard to get into multifamily um, in that market. So that's when, you know, around um, in 2018, we kind of came across uh, Sumrock Group, which is, you know, of course, where we met as well. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of those mentorship programs out there. I, I don't honestly remember. I think Perry maybe had heard about, you know, Sumrock Group and kind of brought it up to me and, it was one of those things where at first I thought it sounded like a scam or whatever. I was like, oh, right. that sounds stupid. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I think a few more months of like banging our heads against the wall. And then I was like desperate enough to try anything. So we, we went to an event in uh, Dallas, uh, some rock event. And, uh, yeah, I mean, totally, totally, you know, changed my mind and, and my whole perspective on what we were doing, you know, and what we should be doing. So, you know, we joined up. Um, after that event. And, uh, I then moved. So I was still in San Francisco at that point. And I, uh, probably about two months after we joined the group, I, I quit my job, you know, it was still a paralegal out there. And did you uh, get moved. your first syndication deal, um, awarded you to you before you quit your job? No, unfortunately, you, you, you definitely <laughs> unfortunately not ships. before. <laughs> yeah. Would have been nicer that way. Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of took the, uh, yeah, burn the ships um, approach. So yeah, I quit my job, moved out to Dallas and uh, it took, it took a full year actually before we got our first deal. So it was not, you know, in retrospect, maybe the most prudent way to go about it. Um, but, you know, I, I was single and no kids, you know, obviously it's different if, you know, you have family and everything, but uh, you know, for me, it's, I'm only, I'm only risking kind of my own, well-being at that point. So I decided <laughs> I was willing to take the risk. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a tough first year for sure. Um, just grinding away, but, uh, you know, it, it paid off obviously in the end. So I, I think it was, it was the right move in, in retrospect. 
Absolutely. So a few things in your story so far is, you know, one, I think a lot of people grapple with how do I find a partner? You know, that like, you know, especially when they're getting started, like what value do I have? Especially if they don't have a lot of money, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, what, what can I really do? What can I really, how can I actually provide value? Um, who's going to want to partner with me? You know, all these negative thoughts, you know, versus, you know, thinking positively and, you know, as to what you can provide value to. So um, would love to have you expand on that a little bit more. And then, you know, actually after that, it's, you spent a freaking year, you know, going after it. And people, in the beginning, you say you're a GP in seven properties and, you know, people are like, holy cow, that's, a, you know, 1,400 units. Holy cow, how do you do that, you know? And think that it's like an overnight success, but you had to grind for a year to get that first mm-hmm. one. And yeah. um, so kind of talk through that. And, and I also think that um, even though you guys only did like a few single families, I think getting any kind of deal done together you know, solidifies the partnership and also gives you the confidence to keep going bigger, you know, because one thing kind mm-hmm. of builds off itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so on on the kind of partnership question, um, yeah. you know, I was definitely just really fortunate to meet someone like Perry sort of really happenstance in a way, right, just off of, you know, some bigger pockets forums it's not even like I was really out there trying to find partners or mentors at that point. You know, I was really just trying to figure it out. So um, help me understand you're on, you're both on bigger pockets. What are mm-hmm. you saying to each other? Like, are you saying I'm looking for a partner? Are you saying like, Hey, I see that you're looking to buy stuff and I'm looking to buy stuff and we're both in the mm-hmm. same market. Let's just get together and, you know, exchange ideas. Like yeah. what, what was that discussion like? Yeah, pr- pretty much the, kind of that latter example. Um, I think, I think it specifically sort of kicked off. It was because I just bought that Oakland, uh, duplex with a friend of mine, you know, as an investment property. And so we were kind of like trying to figure out how to make that work at the time. So we were doing like a sort of part house hacking, like renting part, we Airbnb part. So it was like every, you know, every like tactic we could think of to like actually cash flow in the Bay area, which is not, not <laughs> easy to do. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, it was, it was working, you know, we were actually managed to, you know, get some positive cash flow by, you know, kind of doing those different things. So I think that's where it first started was, I think I was maybe, you know, posting or commenting on, on that specific property. And then, um, Perry may have seen that and, uh, you know, reached out and then, yeah, it was really just kind of, you know, I think we were both just sort of trying to find our way. And, uh, you know, we were both in a similar situation in terms of our experience and, what we were trying to do. Um, but yeah, in those first, in that first period, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't really getting deals together, right? Like I mentioned, it wasn't until, um, Perry moved to Seattle, but, uh, you know, we kind of built the foundation just by, by, you know, meeting up regularly, you know, that's really important. I mean, you can't really build a partnership just on one, one phone call, one meeting, you know, um, it does take time, I think. So that, that was just, you know, kind of key, I think, in building the foundation. Um, and then once we actually started finding some some small deals in Seattle, you know, we felt comfortable with each other at that point that we would, you know, we trusted each other and knew that, that we were on the same page. Um, and uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, even just, just buying some single families together, it's, the size of the deal is not even really the biggest thing um, in terms of the relationship building, I don't think. I mean, no, you're, no, doing, you're doing the same amount of work. Of relationship, but in the beginning, yeah. those first deals were probably, like for me, my first deal was a duplex. And mm-hmm. that was probably my scariest deal. Right. Like, right. you know, like I'd, yeah. you're doing something you haven't done before. And then all of a sudden it's a matter of how can I go bigger? And then how can I learn this? And how can I partner with this mm-hmm. person? But if you don't do that first one, you don't, you don't get that, you know, um, mm-hmm adding on to each other. But one of the things that yeah. you, 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 you know, you, you didn't give yourself necessarily the credit for, which I think is really important is that, you know, whether it's going to a meetup group or it's posting on 
bigger pockets or it's going to a conference, you know, you have to get out there and actually tell people what you're doing and what you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't do that, if you just stay at home, it's not going to come knocking at your door. You know, so you guys didn't necessarily, you didn't necessarily know where it was going to end up, right? You don't, you don't know, but you go, you talk to people, you try to learn. And then all of a sudden one thing leads to another and you guys are partners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's true for sure. I mean, you gotta get out there, get to, you know, meet people, go to events, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. It's another, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. Just, you know, kind of sitting at home for sure. That, that's well, a key. Yeah. You know, but I think that people think like real estate is just about having the money to buy it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's part of, you know, either having the money or knowing how to raise the money, but you know, whatever you're deficient at, there's somebody else out there that knows how to do that piece. You know, so mm-hmm. it's a matter of getting out and talking to people. And that's where some people, they don't realize that. They just give up before they, you know, go out there and give it a chance. So, mm-hmm. all right. So that's my little pep talk on getting people out there. Um, talk about some of the, you've owned, you know, seven properties as a GP. What are some of the learning lessons you've learned? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously that could just go on and on uh, pretty much so pick, forever, pick, but uh, pick, <laughs> pick, uh, yeah, pick one pick. and then we'll, yeah. you know, we'll go the, from there. The so biggest what? lessons. Yeah. yeah. Um, probably, you know, definitely one of the biggest ones is, um, at least for me personally, is, is just the importance of, you know, demographics and location. Um, because I think when I first started out, I was, you know, obviously everybody knows location is, is, you know, key in real estate, but I think when I was starting out, I was more of the mindset of, well, you know, I'm in, uh, you know, I moved to Dallas, right? Dallas, the whole reason for moving to Dallas is because it's known as, you know, really strong market, right? Good, good demographics, population growth, job growth, right? Just all this stuff that we look for in a strong market. So I think I was kind of the mindset, well, Dallas is Dallas. So therefore anything in Dallas should be a good market. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't um, matter what sub market within right. Dallas. It's just, like, yeah, hey, it's, was, it's part of yeah. DFW. It's, yeah, DFW. It's great. Right. right? You can't go wrong. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, you know, DFW is a huge place. I mean, right. massive. I mean, there's hundreds of sub markets, right, within DFW. So I think definitely one of my key learning points, you know, early on was that uh, especially when you're in a larger market like a DFW, and you really have to know the submarkets, um, and and even beyond just looking at at kind of data, you know, you can look at a CoStar report or or Yardy or whatever, and you can see the median income. Um, you know, you can look up crime rates, and and those are obviously key too, of course. Um, but there's also like the qualitative side of it. Um, and, you know, two, two submarkets that each have a median income of, you know, 45,000 can be very different in terms of how they perform. Um, so that, that was definitely a big thing, especially because I came here like to be the, the boots on the ground right. person essentially in my deals. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to be the boots on the ground person, like I think that's a really key part of it. It's like you have to actually go to all these neighborhoods and you have to visit the, not just the property you're looking at, but the comps and talk, talk to the managers and, you know, really get like a feel for it. Um, Cause you know, it's, I think people say this a lot, but you know, it's kind of, I think this whole business is part, part science, right? There's the data part of it and the numbers part of it, but there's kind of the, the, the art side of it too. I think like the qualitative side where, you know, it, that's really, you can't, you only so, get that by spending time and, and right. putting time. So let's in, talk in about the, the the comps piece. So what do you do? How do you go about, you know, checking out the competitive properties in the area? Yeah. So I guess, you know, by now I have kind of a standard process that I'll usually do when I'm looking at a, you know, a deal potential for, you know, acquisition. Um, so usually when I go on the property tour with the broker, you know, it doesn't have to be at the same time, but it's just more convenient because you're already out there. So, you know, normally when I do the the 
tour of the actual subject property, um, then, you know, either before or after that, I'll spend, you know, at least a couple hours uh, just going around to all the, the what I consider the comps. So I'll probably beforehand, you know, come up with a list of, you know, what I view as the best comps in that area. Um, and, you know, it can be a different radius depending on location. You know, if it's a real dense area, maybe you just go a one mile radius if it's So kinda, you drive up into, into one of yeah. them and what are you looking for? Do you go inside? Do you talk to the, the mm -hmm. leasing manager? What's that conversation like? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I kind of, I always just go, go to the leasing office. You know, I know people have different ways of doing it. Some people will kind of pretend to be um, a tenant, right? They'll kind of do like the secret shop method. I sort of, I tried that at first and it just didn't work for me. Because, uh, well, especially for one thing, depending on the, the type of properties you're going to, it may be quite obvious that you're not really looking to live there, um, depending on, you know, the type of property and the normal, right. you know, demographic they get. Uh, I, I actually got called out, I think, once or twice. You did. Like, you're not, you're not actually uh, trying to live here. Yeah, they, uh, they, they know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and I just, you know, I don't like the whole subterfuge of it. That's not kind of my thing. So, so what I do pretty, you do? pretty quickly, I just decided to take the honest approach. So, yeah, I just tell them, hey, I'm looking at, you know, buying a deal in the area and wanted to come, you know, talk to you guys and see what you're doing. And, yeah, usually, I mean, usually people are super uh, open about, sharing information so you know obviously always want to get like what their rents are uh you know what amenities they have all the different you know um what things they might be charging for what uh and then you know talk to them too about the uh that general area right do you get a lot of crime like what kind of problems do you usually have just you know those kind of qualitative questions um, i think that like i think that you get so much information in those conversations. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, I remember the first time doing it, I was, I was nervous doing that. Like, what am I going to yeah. say? Yeah. You know, um, but I take your approach as well. I, I walk in and I just say, you know, hey, I'm part of an investor group and I'm looking at properties in the area and just want to see if I could, you know, get a feel for what you guys are renting units for. And, and a lot of times I ask a few questions and then I just shut up and then the, and the leasing manager more times than not, just share so much information. Oh, this is the best property. Like, I, you know, this area is awesome. I don't even have to, like, do any marketing. Like, all of a sudden, all these things I'd even ask. And I'm like, ooh, this is making it even better, you know? Mm -hmm. um, if they're like, yeah, everyone's complaining that the car's getting broken into. Well, <laughs> right. then, you're, you know, yeah. you, you learn something that way as well. But... Mm -hmm. That is such an important piece. And the funny part is, I don't know if you got this, you know, this feeling or not, but I think some of these leasing managers, they're happy to have somebody to talk to about their business. Like they're used to, you know, the same old like people coming in, want to, you know, ask about the rent, go do a do a tour of the unit. And, you know, all of a sudden you got somebody in there that's a business guy that's, you know, asking them different questions. They'll spend a lot of times 10, 15 minutes with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. I, I think there's no, there's no replacement for that. You yeah. know, that all the data is, is still not going to give you, you know, some of those kind of tidbits that uh, you just, you just need to talk to the people that are kind of there every day. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Um, I remember mm -hmm. uh, I was, I was shopping comp one time and, and the person, a lot of times they know, what property you're, you're looking at. Right, because so they heard or whatever. Like, but, yeah. Right, so I say, like, I'm looking at properties in the area, and then they're like, are you looking at this one? Like, they they know the one that's for sale, right? And uh, mm -hmm. so they're like, I had one person that was like, I'd let my daughter live there. You know, that's in a really good part of town. And, mm -hmm. and I'm like, that's, those are like those things that you couldn't even ask. You know, they just... Right tell you that that's fantastic so i think mm -hmm. that part is so important to, to mm -hmm. see you know and then you can match up right you, i'm sure you do this you match up okay what were the rents that they're telling me and you match that up to the costar report that you already looked right. at and make sure that right. it's real um, yeah but, well that's another good point right is 
the, the data itself may not actually be correct or up to date, you know? Yeah. Cause originally you looked at. at a CoStar report, you know, to do your underwriting and you, you saw these comp properties and you know, the CoStar is showing you, oh, well, well, you, this property that you're looking at is $200 under market, but by going out and visiting the comps, you could actually walk away and be like, yeah, this is real. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you get an understanding of, well, why is this property able to charge more? What are they doing differently? Right. And, right. and apply, apply that to, to maybe your business plan, what you're looking to do. Yeah. And I think the people that are not in this world, not in the value add multifamily space, they, I think they think that you're guessing that you're trying to push the market. You, oh, I'm just going to fix up the units and then raise rents to a certain point. But when you go do the comps, like you already know that they're, they're getting that down the road. You just know that mm-hmm. they're getting it because their interiors are nicer, you know, or the mm-hmm. exterior looks nicer. And if I do that over here, we should be able to do it. So it's not like it's a guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, that's part of it for me. You know, since I'm the one who's usually doing most of the underwriting um, and, you know, the acquisition side of things, um, it's always just trying to dial in everything as as precisely as possible, right, based on comps and, you know, the same goes for expenses and everything else. So we're both part of a mentorship group. Tell me if you felt this way. I, when I would go on a bus tour and we go visit a property and there's somebody in the group that was selling the property and there's somebody else that's buying the property. When I was first in the group, I'm like, the one that's buying the property is a sucker. <laughs> you know, like they're buying it at the, you know, the height, the other guy and all their investors are making out like a killing. Why would they do that? And everybody's applauding them, you know? <laughs> and it wasn't until afterwards that I realized that like they're bringing fresh capital so they can take it to the next level where the, Original group, you know, maybe they're out of out of capital. They already did their business plan, and they can't move the product, the property to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you I mean, feel I think that I way the in same, the beginning? Yeah, yeah, I definitely had that same like question where it's like, well, they already made all the money, so like, why? <laughs> what's what's in it for these these new guys? Right. Yeah, I, I remember. I think one of the first deals. It might have even been the first bus tour after I, you know, joined the group, there was a property in Fort Worth on the tour. And, uh, it was that situation where it was, you know, someone, a Sumrock person, you know, uh, selling it to another Sumrock group. And then that one, actually it's been, uh, three times now. Then that second group (laughs) sold it to a third, uh, Sumrock group. I don't know if I know of any others that were three in a row, um, like within the group, but, yeah, I mean, it was a good example of, you know, there was still a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of meat on the bone, right? Like we say, um, each time it sold because, you know, a lot when you're buying like a, you know, if it's a 60s, 70s, you know, type property, which is kind of what a lot of us start out with uh, when we're syndicating. Um, I mean, you know, it takes, to, if it's, if it's why, like, why do we classic, start out there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why, exactly. do we, why do we start well, out there? And then, then people graduate up into the eighties and nineties and 2000. Right. Ideally, maybe one day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we, I mean, cause there's, they're just easier to get right when you're starting is like, it's cheaper. As price per door is less. There's, yeah. you know, the, the senior guys have graduated yeah. on to other properties and. Right. Um, right. Um, yeah. And if you're trying to get more more doors for the money, obviously right. you're going to get get it more on like a, a lower class. But but yeah, so if you're buying like you know 60s 70s property and and if you're like the first one in, and you know it's it hasn't been renovated for you know some guys owned it for 20 years and hasn't touched it, it's going to be like rough, right? I mean, it's going to need a lot of of money to get it up to any kind of decent condition. And so I think the typical trajectory for those deals is you know, for the first few years, it takes, takes the first owner a few years and maybe, you know, a couple million just to get it from, you know, trash to, to presentable, you know, maybe they don't even do the interiors, right? Maybe the first guy just does a lot of deferred maintenance and some exterior stuff and then, okay, they're out of money, you know, but they've, but they've improved it a lot. They've increased the value, right? They can get a good return now. 
So they sell it. Now maybe the next guy comes in. It's like, all right, well, the first guy did, you know, the deferred maintenance and, and some exterior stuff. Now I'm going to really focus on, you know, unit upgrades. So they kind of put a lot of money to that. But maybe they only get up to, you know, a third of the units or half the units. And by that time, they've increased the value enough and they can get a good return. And yeah, so, you know, at some point, yeah, I guess you do eventually hit the the point where it's like, all right, there's literally like nothing else we can do here. Right. But it takes a few cycles normally on those older deals. And I think that's why it can often work. It can make sense, you know, for each buyer, um, even though the previous buyer might be making a great return on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a good point. Now, what about, what's your view in terms of like where to spend money first? Um, exterior, office, interiors, like what's the kind of the pecking order? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's the conventional wisdom, maybe it is that you usually would do kind of the, the curb appeal type stuff first. Um, I think I generally, you know, subscribe to that process. So, you know, so cause why, you're not going to get that? people, um, well, I think, you know, you're just not going to get people in the door if it's just unappealing from the outside. Right. If somebody's driving by, they're going to have no interest in even checking it out. If, you know, you have no signage and your landscaping is crap. And it doesn't you know, matter how nice it is on the inside. If it doesn't right. look They'll good never, on the outside, they're not even going to stop. Right. right. And even if they had like a tour schedule, they might just bail once they see the outside because they're just like, well, I mean, they're not even taking care of, you know, the basic stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that definitely is is kind of priority number one is like obviously major, major deferred maintenance, you know, uh, and then the big kind of curb appeal stuff, um, you know, obviously having good signage, good branding, uh, good landscaping, you know, paint if it if it needs, you know, new paint scheme, all that kind of stuff. Is, so the, the flip side of that is is that you you're driving by and you're like, holy cow, they're putting a lot of money into that. Like that looks nice now. I want to go check out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's the and I mean, especially it's, you know, there's the reputation also. Right. So if like, if you're buying a property that, that hasn't really um, had much work done to it in a long time and, you know, it's like has really bad reviews maybe online and all that kind of thing, you know, doing just a whole rebranding, I think is really important um that's not always the case maybe it's already got a good reputation and you can just kind of ride that but i mean definitely a couple of the properties we've bought we we really had to do the rebranding like right away because you know it just had terrible reviews and everything online about it was just you know looked really bad and you're just never gonna get you know people in there with with that kind of like reputation so um that's definitely a big one is you know, it's it's the visual, but then also like tying the marketing in with your right. online marketing and everything else. So I've seen pictures before and after of some of your office, uh, you know, the office of, in some of your properties and the transformation is amazing. So talk about why, why would you put money into the office rather than into, say, the units? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely office is one that, that I always like to do, um, unless it was just, you know, recently done and looks great. But, um, you know, if it's, if it's kind of an older shabby office, um, I think it ties into kind of why, why we're doing all that curb appeal. So, you know, first step is the curb appeal, right? That's what they see first, but then what they see second is the office. Cause that's, that's where they're going, uh, directly. And so if you have great curb appeal, but a crap office, then <laughs> again, it's like, they're going to be like, well, you know, these guys are not really, you know, they're putting lipstick on a pig, right? They're not, they're not really improving this place. Um, so, it's the you first know, impression when they walk yeah. in, right? Is, is, you know, yeah. it gives them a feeling of these guys are, you know, putting money into it. They're trying to create something nice. This is, this looks nice. Mm-hmm. If the, if the unit I go look at is comparable to this, then this could be a place I want to be. Um, yeah. Another person yeah. had told me, and I didn't realize this, I didn't think about it, but uh, that a lot of the buying decisions are made by women. You know, so if, mm-hmm. the, if, the, if it's a couple that is, you know, going to rent, 
even if the guy is the one that's doing most of the talking, they get back in their car and the woman's like, that was a junky office. You know, like, uh, no, I'm not living there. And if, if she's not happy, he's not going to, he's not going to pull the trigger. Yeah. I, I've heard the exact same thing. So I think, um, I think that must be right <laughs> because I've, I've definitely heard that from multiple managers and, you know, people that are the ones dealing with the, with the tenants. And yeah, like you said, I, mean, I think a lot of times it's, you know, the, the women might care a little bit more about the design and the, you know, the feel of something like the office than, than a guy who might not particularly pay as much attention to those things. Right. Um, and, you know, I think another sort of ancillary benefit of, you know, having just a really nice office is like, that's where your staff works. And, uh, you know, if somebody goes going to work every day in a shabby, crappy office, like how motivated are they going to be, right? How happy of an employee are they going to be? So, I mean, I think it's just, it's just that's really a, That's big. a great point. I mean, like, yeah. do they feel professional? Do they feel like they're in a, in a, in a really good environment? Like how, and it probably rubs off on how they treat the tenants, you know, like if it's a, um, a really nice professional place, then they're probably, you know, treating the, the tenants that way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's all kind of a chain, you know, I think everything affects everything else. So we're in a weird time. We talked about in the beginning that we're kind of hitting some headwinds. We've got higher interest rates. We've got inflation. Uh, we've got um, now, you know, as we record this, we, we've had a few banks go under and, you know, there's question marks on whether there'll be contagion or whether that's it. Um, so I know some syndicators that are like, I'm on the sidelines. I'm just, I'm just beefing up my cash and my liquidity and I'm waiting for, you know, the trouble deals to come my way. I've got other people that are, you know, like, look, I'm not trying to time the market and I'm just going to continue to buy going through. Um, you know, where do you stand? Yeah. I mean, I'm probably sort of in the middle. Um, I, I haven't been making offers lately. I'll say that. So we, we bought our last deal about, uh, six months ago and, uh, I haven't made any offers since then. Um, but I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm just kind of waiting on the sidelines. I mean, I am looking at deals. I'm I'll, I'll under, you know, anything that looks interesting, I'll underwrite it you know, I'll run the numbers. Um, the problem is my, uh, where it pencils out for me is usually well below what, you know, the whisper is or what the, right. the seller's looking for. So hence why I'm not really, you know, I don't want to just throw out a bunch of low ball offers. That's not really how I like to, to operate. So I feel like if I can't make a competitive offer, I'm just, I'm not going to, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always talking to brokers and trying to stay up to date on what's out there looking at the deals. So, you know, I guess my, my approach right now is, you know, if a deal pencils at the number that that works for my underwriting, then I'll go for it. I'm not going to hold back for other reasons. Um, but it, I think, you know, just a combination of the market shifts that we've seen. And, you know, I probably am underwriting more conservatively in some ways than maybe I was, you know, a year ago. Um, you know, we know expenses have, have gone crazy. Insurance, right, has been a big one. Um, rent growth is a big question. You know, we had the insane rent growth for a couple of years, and now it's actually declining in most markets, uh, at least over the last few months. So it's like, well, how do you underwrite future rent growth? It's, it's, you know, these are big. And, you know, just a percent here, a percent there can really, you know, make or break um, the underwriting. So, I'm just in general. I'm I'm definitely being a little more conservative um, on my assumptions, and which for better pretty, or worse, that means a lot of stuff doesn't pencil out right, right. now. Right, which is pretty consistent with you know what I hear from other syndicators and also other also brokers. You know that there's a there's a disconnect between where people want to sell and where people want to buy, and but that gap from what I'm hearing is narrowing, so it's getting you know getting closer. Um, what about um, the types of loans that you put on the deals? Do you have any bridge loans that are floating rate loans? And, you know, that's a big deal in today's market and trying to figure out how do you manage the increased debt service and then also if it's an agency loan that requires you to start 
you know, escrowing for future rate cap? How do you, you know, manage that ca- cash flow hit? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are definitely like the, the big challenges right now. Um, yeah, I do have, I do a few bridge loans. Um, I also have a floating rate agency loan. So I'm dealing with, with all those <laughs> situations all those right situations. now. So, do you yeah. have any good solutions that you can share <laughs> share well, with people? Refi if you can <laughs> to fix rate. Yeah. So on the on the agency floating rate, that one we bought um, December 2020. So that's the oldest of my current deals, aside from the one we sold. Um, so you know that one's obviously had the most time to kind of build NOI, and you know it's it's you know on pretty solid footing financially. And so that one we are right now looking, or we actually already submitted the um, application for a refi. So that we're just looking to move, it's a Freddie floater. We're just looking to refi into uh, a fixed rate. And like you mentioned, it's it's all about those, um, the, in, the rate cap reserves on the floating rate. So our reserves are literally 100K a month on that property. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, like, I'm, you know, I'm an LP in some deals where all of a sudden you're, you're paying 30,000 a month and then next month you're paying 75,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, in, I'm in this world, so I understand it, you know, and I, have, I can talk to the syndicators about it, but there's some LPs that don't really understand. They're like, how can you go from 30,000 to 75,000? <laughs> and I think that LP, there's certain LPs that think that once that, that payment is made, that's like gone, that's gone money, but it's actually an escrow mm-hmm. that right. is going just right. to like property taxes and insurance. And if the cost of rate caps go down over the next six months, then those reserves will come back, um, which, you know, but there's, there's no guarantee that it will happen. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, on that, on that deal, as an example, you know, if you were really, you know, strongly of the opinion that rates are about to plummet, maybe it's not a good idea to refi right now. And certainly we've, you know, the partners, we all have discussed <laughs> all the different scenarios and should we really refi now? Should we wait? Everybody thinks rates are going to drop. Um, so it's tricky. I mean, right now it's for sure the trickiest time since, you know, that I've been doing this, not that I've been been doing it for all that long, but, um, but really I think for anybody who's been doing this for the last 10 years, since the last crisis, it's probably the most difficult period right now. Um, and, and not a whole lot of people have been through this situation before. So I think we're kind of all trying to figure it out together. Um, but yeah, so for that particular property, we just decided, you know what, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and at least submit the application, start the process. Then, you know, if, if rates just start plummeting and our, then our rate cap gets super cheap, maybe, maybe we'll decide to, you know, to not do the refi and just stick with the loan. So, but we at least want to be in a position to pull the trigger on the refi, you know, if we need to. Um, so that's, you know, we're, we're starting the process there. Um, on the bridge loan deals, you know, those are a little bit newer. So, you know, most of those are unfortunately, I think our oldest bridge loan is like 18 months. So it's getting to the point where maybe we're close to being able to get like a, like a cash neutral refi at least. Um, but on that one, we actually just decided to, uh, to list it, to sell. Mm. Um, we decided that, you know, the, the refi options, like, it's not great, right? Best case is still not really great right now because of interest rates. And um, we decided, you know, it looks like if we can sell for for the price we want, which the broker thinks we can get, um, you know, it's not going to be a home run by any means, but it'll be a, a good return. We get liquidity, our investors get liquidity. And to me, that's kind of the most important thing right now. If you can get some kind of return and, and get liquidity, and be prepared for, you know, the next round of what, what I think is probably a lot of good deals, you know, coming down the line. Um, I'll, I'll take that outcome. I think most yeah, of the time. Absolutely, so. absolutely. I'm in a lot of deals. I'm like, you know, I just don't see that many things turning this year. Like if, 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 you know, if I was in your deal and all of a sudden you returned my money, I'm like, all right, that's cool. Like, you know, so mm-hmm. I think there's probably a lot of people out there that feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. so, 
Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. Obviously, these days when you list something for sale, it's uh, certainly no guarantee that you'll actually end up selling it. But, uh, you know, if not, again, we'll we'll pivot to the refi strategy. And, uh, you know, I think at least it's like, um, you know, what's the everybody keeps saying survive to 25. Right. Yeah. It's like the <laughs> I forget where I heard it first, but it's yeah. definitely been like popularized at this point. I think. I, I've definitely heard it. Yeah, definitely yeah. heard it. Um, so do what you do. What you got to do to survive. I think right now. Is, ex- is exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think there is trouble in, in the multifamily markets from, you know, bridge, but, you know, I remember also when, and this could, you know, this time could be different, but I remember when COVID happened, everybody was like, holy cow, like, People are not going to pay the rent. How are we going to pay the mortgage? And and then all of a sudden, you know, nine months later, it was like a completely different world. Like interest rates were lower and, you know, cap rate compression and valuations were up. And, you know, I guess that, that's the hope for everybody is that there's some saving grace that's going to come in here and, and save the day for people. Um, where... Mm-hmm. Like office, you know, neither one of us are in, are in office. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, definitely glad I didn't go into office. Yeah, like I right just now. don't know how they get saved. Like I think that there's, yeah. uh, there's a place for office in like, you know, new areas that are being built up, um, you know, here in the Dallas market off the tollway, you know, through Frisco and up through Prosper and up, up you know, is, is I think mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, good office markets. But, um, and I invested in a deal in Atlanta that was an office conversion. So they bought an old office building and mm-hmm. they're converting it to multifamily. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know how successful it's going to be, but that was one, that was one of the reasons why I invested in it was because I wanted to, I think there's probably going to be more of that repurposing of office buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something I've, you know, been reading a lot about just as a, you know, potential strategy. Um, I think, I think the thing with office and Grant, I'm no expert on office. I've never done it myself, but it seems like from what I hear is that office, it's really kind of like what you were talking about, like the, the brand new, like class A, office in like really high growth areas, that's probably going to do okay. Cause like there is still demand for like the really, really nice office space in these like high employment centers, but it's like that older stuff, you know, like the B and C class office, like nobody wants that. And, and it's not like multifamily where there's like always demand for B and C because it's literally, that's the price point that people are going to afford. They can't, they can't afford class A. They got to go to B and C. Um, but obviously I think there's not that demand there for the lower class stuff. Right. So that's, so the, I think the, the question mark is going to be like, how efficient can you come, you know, repurpose it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, can you make money on buying at a low per square foot and then having to dump in all this rehab money to reconfigure mm-hmm. it? And, you know, that's time, time will tell whether, whether that's successful or not, but, mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I definitely yeah. think that's an opportunity that, that could, uh, you know, play mm-hmm. well for people in the future. Um, yeah. So where do you go from here, my man? Like, what's the next big stretch goal for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, I think because, you know, when you get to, to a certain uh, size, right, a certain number of deals, especially if, if, you know, my role is really the, you know, the uh, operations and the acquisitions and, you know, operations is like, it's really time consuming. It's like a, you know, it's a job, it's work, you know, it's, you got to deal with, you know, a bunch of, bunch of stuff every day um, on every property usually. Um, Cause you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily the only asset manager on every deal, but you know, I am one of the primary asset managers on all of my deals. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a lot of time. And when you, when you've got, you know, about six deals that I deal with now, it well, really just must becomes be a, time a quiet crunch. time, you know, you could K1s like, <laughs> right. Know, yeah. This right, is the, nice the easiest easy, time of year. Like you're just coasting, right? Yeah. <laughs> I could literally check how many emails I had just about K1s today. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more than 10 just on that. 
but uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, it's just dealing with all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I have obviously Perry, you know, he's, he's kind of my primary partner. Um, but, you know, each deal also has different partners depending on the deal as well. You know, some were mainly to help raise capital, some were, you know, help out on asset management or various things. So it's, um, it's not necessarily the most efficient way to do things, right? When you have different partners on different deals, different people responsible for different aspects. Um, and so something that I've, you know, been thinking more about lately is how to really um, streamline, you know, going forward and really build more processes, um, maybe even look into vertical integration at some point, you know, bringing, bringing management um, in-house and hiring, you know, hiring real staff you know, professional staff that, that deal with those things. Um, so I think that would be the next kind of logical step at, at this point where I'm kind of at the, at the size and experience level where if I really want to, you know, go to that next level, it's going to take, um, you know, becoming really like a real business, you know, I mean, I, I almost, even though I've been doing this full time for what, over four years now, I kind of still view myself as an amateur in some ways because, you know, I don't have employees. I don't have a real company uh, uh, that's structured, you know, in such a way that it allows for um, like the, the real growth to happen. Um, so that's, Which that's is really okay, right? Because point. I mean, yeah. like, look, you, you know, there's some people that like think, like how I could never buy a hundred unit deal, right? And you, you know, you were buying single family deals and then you buy hundred. Now you're thinking like, well, how do I streamline processes, you know, and make mm -hmm. the, the company more efficient so that I could take it to the next level. And where you're at yep. is where I hear a lot of people, a lot of syndicators start talking about that, you know, getting over a thousand units, you know, is, is where people start saying, should I bring property management in house, you know, um, mm -hmm. Or should I continue to yeah. use third party? So it's kind of the natural process of right. things that you're going through. And and then you do one yeah. thing after the other. And then all of a sudden you look back and you're like, holy cow, how did I do all that? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it is sort of a natural progression, I think. And, you know, I don't, I don't know necessarily how most people plan or how far most people think ahead when they first get started in this industry or really, I guess, any new, like, you know, industry or venture or whatever. But I mean, when I started, like, I didn't have really long-term goals, to be honest, for better or worse. I really, my, my actual goal was just to make enough money to not have to get another job. <laughs> so, you know, that, that first year that I was here scrounging for, for the first deal, all I cared about was just, you know, I'm burning money. I need to make enough money that I can like survive. And I Which really I don't want to you know, get a job again. <laughs> again, I think it's natural. And most, most people like, you know, the listeners that are not in this world that are like trying to get their first deal. That's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about building their own wealth. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you know, you get seven deals under the table and then all of a I have to imagine there's people in your network that are like, Ed, how'd you do it, dude? You know, like mm -hmm. help me. <laughs> I, I want to do that. And, and you sure. give them some advice. Some of them take it. Some of them don't. And, and now you're looking to actually grow the co company, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a different world. Um, so. Yeah. 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 I mean, awesome. it's, I think it's total, total mindset change from when I first started. Right. I was just looking at what's the next deal or what's the first deal. Right. <laughs> and there's just, all I need is to get to that first deal and not even thinking, you know, any steps beyond that. And then, yeah, like you said, I think as you grow and, and learn and progress, you know, your, your mindset kind of expands, right? And you get, you know, you get access to people that are, you know, many levels beyond where you are. Um, I think that's key. Like when you talk about mindset, you, you see other people that are two, three, four, five levels ahead of you. And then you're like, mm -hmm. you, you see the example, it helps you expand your mindset. Like, okay, well, how do I get there? And, mm -hmm. and it's that journey of, of continual learning and, and pushing yourself. Um, but if you, you know, I think it'd be much harder if you didn't see it from other people, you know, oh, if you weren't surrounded by yeah. other people that were being successful, you know, um, you're doing yeah. it on an island. It just, it, 
it makes it more difficult. But mm-hmm. when you see yeah. all these people doing it, it feels <laughs> it feels like everybody's doing it. But like it's it's just our <laughs> world, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the big advantages of you know joining a group like we did, right? And not to shill for any particular group, I think there's probably lots of good ones out there, but Absolutely. just some kind of group that has people that are doing what you want to be doing. And it has, you know, different levels, right? If everybody, if you're in a group where everybody's just got a few single families and you want to do multifamily or go bigger, like that's not probably going to be the most helpful environment, right? But I think we were fortunate to be in a group where there are people that are, you know, exponential levels <laughs> above even where, you know, where I am right now. And so it's like, there's always somebody else you can learn from um, in that kind of environment. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember uh, fun <laughs> and, and not work. Come on, my man. You got you to yeah. put some of that in there. You, yeah, you're exactly. making good coin. You got to be able to enjoy your life a little bit. You yeah, know? no, exactly. Um, well, yeah, actually, my kind of one of my main hobbies um, that I'm, I'm kind of just getting, getting back into uh, COVID had thrown everything out of whack was uh, uh jujitsu actually so awesome. obviously that was something that we couldn't really do when when covid hit um but uh that was always kind of one of my favorite things just to kind of blow off steam and you know it's a lot of fun so how often um, do you do you do that uh i mean ideally i try to do like three three times a week Four would kind of be my target, but, uh, you know, I'm happy if I can get to three. <laughs> but, and uh, are, you, are you doing that now? Yeah, just I've started up again recently. It's uh, it's like, you know, embarrassing how uh, bad of shape I'm in right now, but uh, <laughs> just after not doing it for a while. So you know what? Yeah. You got to eventually block out the time to do it, right? Exactly. Yeah, and, you just got to make time. We're right? all busy yeah. and we all have to, mm-hmm. you know, you, ha- you have to block out some time for friends, family, yep. fun, and, mm-hmm. and health, you know? So, yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, I, I am trying to kind of make, make more effort actually to prioritize some of those things. Cause you know, sometimes it feels like you just get so kind of swallowed up in the work and then you, you, you know, it's like months later and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> did I even like see any friends last month? Like, did I even <laughs> go out the last month? So yeah, I think that is important. Uh, awesome. So hey, if uh, people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah. So you know, I, I don't even um, have a real website, which is I probably should get around to at some point. But uh, there's my email, which is just uh, Sittler C. So that's S S is in Sam I T T L E R C at Gmail. Um, and then I have kind of kind of the the substitute for a website is my bio and everything is on cash flow uh, marketplace that's actually you know my partner Perry's um website that he probably talked about so it's kind of a marketplace for syndicators and people put their profiles on there so that would be cash flow marketplace uh I think slash profiles slash uh ed dash sittler you can probably <laughs> just like search the name on there I should probably figure out it. Yeah, that's great. So you you got fourteen hundred units. You don't even have a website to like you know draw people and like so people just found out about Ed and Perry and they want to invest with you guys. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's partly you know the the equity raising is not really what I focus on. So you know, I'm specifically really more the operations and the the boots on the ground stuff so you know perry perry's definitely more uh between the two of us more of the equity raiser um because he had such a good network you know of tech people right that was his whole background um i didn't really have a good network to to start with necessarily and i just never felt drawn to that side of it um so i just decided hey you know, i'm gonna i'm gonna focus on the parts that I feel like I'm. Yeah. Hey, I'm it worked. I mean, at. everyone says, you know, find a partner that, you know, where you, where you can right. complement one another rather than mm-hmm. have the same skill set. So that's, that's exactly. Great. Well, Ed, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Um, if you, if listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. If you want to, he gave his email address and also a place to, to find him on Cashflow marketplace. Um, what I'd say is like, it's a perfect story of 
look, if you believe in yourself and you grind it out and you follow what other people have done, it's definitely possible to do. You know, you just can't quit. You got to decide and be persistent at continuing to get out there. So until next week, sign off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 